I want to welcome those of you over in East Hall, and we have a special speaker this morning, Sam Alberry. I met Sam several years ago, and the first time I heard him speak, I knew I wanted him someday to come here and speak to us, and so I am so glad uh, that we have finally gotten him here. Uh, Sam is ordained uh, in the Anglican Church. He pastored a church in the UK for many years. Now he's a full-time speaker for Robbie Zacharias Ministries. Uh, he is also a visiting professor at Cedarville University. Uh, he has authored six books and has a seventh on the way. Sam will be kicking off our series uh, that we're calling Freedom to Change. We're going to look at four different people in the Bible and how they were radically changed by the power and the presence of Jesus. So please give a warm welcome to Sam Albury. Thanks. Well, good morning, and thank you uh, for that welcome. Your welcome is much warmer than your weather. I thought we had bad weather in the UK, but at least we have spring. We don't have summer, but we have spring. Well, I'm grateful to Pastor Joe for the invitation. Um, we at RZIM have been blessed to have Joe's encouragement and the support and partnership with you here. So thank you very much for, for having me um, over this weekend. Um, I love New Year's resolutions. Um, as the, the New Year approaches, I love to, to think about all of the ways my life needs to change, all the improvements that are going to come uh, in January. And I start to plan them. I think, yeah, I'm going to go to the gym more next year. I'm going to eat more fruit next year. Then New Year arrives, and for the first few days, I'm uh, just a whirlwind of self-discipline and keeping all these resolutions, and it's going well, and I'm excited. By about the 7th of January, <laughs> I've broken all of them. And I'm less enamored with New Year's resolutions. By January the 10th, I decide to become more postmodern and reinterpret these resolutions. Go to the gym. There's a sauna at the gym. I can go to the gym and just sit in the sauna, and I have fulfilled the resolution. Um, have more fruit. Doesn't necessarily mean eat more fruit. So I have a bowl of nicely rotting fruit on my kitchen table, and I fulfilled the resolution. And then after a while, I start to think, do you know what? I really do need to change. And so as the next New Year rolls around, I think, I'm going to make a difference this New Year. And so it goes on. The cycle is the same most years. I'm sure I'm not alone. We want to change, don't we? Not all of us, all the time, in the same way, to the same extent, but all of us, a good deal of the time, in significant ways and to a great extent, want to change. And deep down, we know the things that we most need to change are deep down. And resolutions, changes of habit just don't cut it. So it is great to have this series, Freedom to Change, as part of your Transformed 2018 uh, theme this year. And we have a wonderful example of how someone's life is completely changed by the Lord Jesus. Uh, this morning we're thinking about uh, John chapter 4 and the woman at the well that Jesus encounters. If you've got a Bible, um, do open it up. If not, I believe that the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. 
Um, it's a well-known uh, episode in the, the life of Jesus. If you're familiar with, with the Bible, then you will, I'm sure, have come across it before. Uh, let me read the first um, few verses. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is traveling from uh, Judea in the south up to Galilee in the north, which means going through Samaria. Samaria is the region that lies between the two. And it's a long journey, so Jesus needs a pit stop. So he comes to the town of Sychar, they have a well, that's good enough for now, so he sits by the well and uh, the two things we, we see in verse 6 is that he's, he's on his own. Uh, the disciples were told uh, in verse 8 have gone off to find food and we're told it's a sixth hour, that is midday. That is not a comfortable time to be out and about in a very hot climate. Well, so far, so normal. But almost immediately, things start to become unusual. Uh, Jesus is on his own, but not for very long. In verse 7, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. And the first surprising thing that happens is that Jesus says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. That may not be headline news for us. They're both at a well, and as we'll find out in a moment, she has a bucket and Jesus doesn't. So in one sense, it's entirely understandable. But in that culture, that would have been scandalous. Uh, Jesus is a man and she's a woman. And if you were a man in those days, you weren't supposed to talk to a woman you didn't know. But more than that, she's not just a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. And the Jews despised the Samaritans. John tells us a bit about that in verse 9. He says that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, Samaria was a, a region that in the Old Testament had kind of split off from the rest of the people of God. They'd then been invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians had settled the land with other people, and so they'd all become intermingled. So the Jews thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds, but the kind of half-breed where even the good half was pretty awful, and the bad half was even worse. But even worse than that is the kind of Samaritan woman she is. She's there on her own in the middle of the day when you are pretty much guaranteed not to see anybody else, which suggests she is on the margins. She's an outcast. And what we see in the passage about her confirms that. It's interesting, if you know John's Gospel, in chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus, a respectable Jew, meets Jesus in the middle of the night when no one else is around. And now in chapter 4, this disreputable woman meets Jesus in the middle of the day when no one else is around. And so by, by approaching her and talking to her, Jesus is breaking social, ethnic, religious and gender barriers. 
He is the one who initiates conversation with her. And it's just a reminder to us that Jesus was not bound by the culture of his day. He speaks to her not to have a go at her, not to take advantage of her. He asks her for water. He treats her with dignity and respect. And it's a reminder, isn't it, of how unlike us Jesus is. The people that we want to avoid so often, Jesus is interested in. Well, in verse 9, she is understandably surprised. She says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink when I'm a woman of Samaria? She's a little suspicious. What's, what's going on here? Why, why are you talking to me? Well, the next surprise comes in what happens next. Uh, verse 10, let me read a couple of verses here. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is saying, I've, I've asked you for a drink, but really you should be asking me for a drink. It's kind of weird. Uh, Jesus seemed to be the one who was thirsty and needing water. And now he's saying, you need to ask me for a drink. And as she points out in a, in a moment's time, he doesn't have anything to draw water with. But listen again to what Jesus is saying. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is not offering well water. He is offering something very different. He says, if you had known the gift of God, there is something God has for people that comes as a gift. Which means it is not something that we, we deserve or earn or merit. It makes no difference what our, our race is, what our sex is, what our character is. There's a gift that is available. It's found, Jesus says, in him. And he tells us what that gift is. It is living water. A very different type of water to the stuff we drink every day. Well, verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She is understandably confused. Jesus, there's only one well here. So whatever you're offering, where, where are you getting it from? And by the way, this, this is Jacob's well. Are you, are you trying to say you're better than Jacob? Have you got something else? Is there some hidden other well that I, I can't see? Well, verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Jesus is saying, this, this, this well is great. But you drink this water and you'll thirst again. You'll be back. Because this water can only quench your thirst for so long. You're going to be back here tomorrow and the next day. And so Jesus is saying to us, the water we drink on a daily basis is not the only kind of water there is. The thirst for our daily water is not the only thirst there is. And Jesus says he has something very different to offer, his living water. He says, the water that I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. His water will, will fully quench our thirst. Jesus is saying if we receive from him we will receive ultimate satisfaction. The water Jesus offers becomes inside of us a spring. In other words, the thirst that Jesus has ultimately coming to deal with is not the thirst of our, our lips, but the thirst of our hearts. He says there is an inner thirst there's a thirst of our souls. And he can satisfy that. So my friend, Jesus is saying there is something you crave that nothing in this world will ever satisfy. We need to think about that. Jesus is saying, whatever we make the focus and center of our lives will never be enough. It may well be a good thing, but the moment we make it an ultimate thing, it becomes it becomes like salt water. The more we drink, the more thirsty we get. However much we have in life, we need more. It might be money, it might be success, it might be intimacy, it might be power, it might be control. We will never have enough. Our restlessness and boredom is a sign of that inner thirst. And it's why success never satisfies. However far we get, the relief, the euphoria is only temporal. And again, we find ourselves wanting more. C.S. Lewis put it so well in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Jesus is saying there is a thirst within the heart of each one of us 
that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. It can only be satisfied by something from outside this world. And he claims to offer that for us this morning. Well, however much of this that the woman understood, we're not sure, but what she's heard, she likes the sound of. So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water. Um, Sign me up. I'll, I'll take some so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. If, if you can stop me making my, my daily commute in the middle of a hot day with my heavy bucket of water, that's great. Well, Jesus then says yet another strange thing to her. Don't you love Jesus? <laughs> he is so counterintuitive. Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. Go and get your husband. Come, come, come bring him here. Seems a little bit abrupt. And yet Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's actually pressing home his point. Because she says to him in verse 17, I have no husband. And then Jesus says to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What's going on? Jesus is not just talking to her about her inner thirst, he's now showing her her inner thirst. He knows her. He knows her background, he knows her past, he knows her present. He knows why she's on her own in the middle of the day, why she's an outcast. She has had a string of husbands She's now on to man number six and she's not even married to him yet. And so he's putting his finger on where this inner thirst most presents itself in her life. She is trying to quench her soul with men. That seems to be where she is looking for that ultimate satisfaction. None of these men has been the answer. But evidently, she's always thinking, maybe the next one will be. Maybe number six is going to be the lucky one. But there's something else we need to to bear in mind before we kind of cast her as a kind of voracious man-eater. We need to recognize that at the the time of of Jesus, in this, this time and culture, Only men could initiate divorce. So the fact that she has had five husbands means she has been rejected and divorced five times. 
So she's not just looking for a man who can satisfy her in the way that her previous men couldn't. She actually is looking for someone who is not going to reject her. Someone who won't cast her to one side. Actually, she needs someone that the weight of her soul is not going to be too much for. And that person is standing right in front of her. Well, understandably, she, I'm sure, is very, very uncomfortable with what Jesus has just said. He's, he's now on very, very tender ground with her heart. Things have suddenly got very, very personal and very close to home. He's exposed to her, the story of her life. And so, understandably, in verse 19, she tries to change the subject. So, verse 19 and 20, she says, Sir, I, I perceive you're a prophet. Okay, you've got some intel here. And then you hear the gear change. Hey, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So let's change the subject, Jesus. Let's talk about some, some theology. Tries to get the conversation back to arm's length. Well, Jesus replies, and again, he doesn't change the subject. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. This is not about geography. This is not about who's got the best mountain. This is not about where you live. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know of, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus isn't changing the subject. He's told her there is a, a thirst that is inner. A thirst that comes from the heart, from the very soul of us. She tries to move the subjects onto different types of worship and, and this place or that place. And Jesus says, it's all to do with the heart. We're back to your inner life. What matters is not where you live, but having a heart relationship with God. Well, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's saying, in effect, listen, I, there's someone coming, he's going to explain it all. I don't think she understands what Jesus is saying, but there's a guy coming called the Christ. He's going to explain everything. I'll understand it when he comes. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the person you are waiting for. I am the one who was promised. I am the one, I am explaining all things to you now. Well, at this point, the disciples return. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? You can imagine they're 
bemusement. They come back, they've found a Walmart or an Arby's or something, they've got some, some food, and yet Jesus is talking to a woman, they're, they're scandalized, but being disciples, they don't say anything, they, they just mutter to themselves, what's, what's he doing? Why is he talking to her? We, we've got the food, Why is, what's going on here? But look at what happens next. Because this is amazing. This is the change. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So when she first arrives on the scene, the two things we immediately know about her are, firstly, she's thirsty. That's why she's at the well. And secondly, she's an outcast. She meets Jesus, and look at how she is now in verse 28. It's a lovely detail. She leaves her water jar. The one thing that she came for, she's now forgotten about. She's no longer thirsty. And then next, she goes into the town to the very people who have ostracized her and talks to them about Jesus and brings them to him. She's no longer thirsty and she is no longer an outcast. And the question is why? And the answer we will find when we get to the end of John's Gospel is because Jesus has taken her place. When Jesus went to the cross and died for her and for you and for me, he went through ultimate thirst. He cried on the cross, I thirst. He became parched of this living water so that we would one day be filled with it. As he died, he lacked something in God he had never lacked before. He became ultimately thirsty for us. And he became the ultimate outcast for us. Jesus was targeted by his enemies. He was crushed by the authorities. He was betrayed, denied, and abandoned by his friends. He was mocked by strangers, and he was forsaken by God himself. He became the ultimate outcast. He was shut out so that we would be drawn in. And we see that already happening with this lady. So let me close by sharing three lessons I I think all of us can take away from this encounter. Three ways in which we too can experience that same change as this Samaritan lady. The first is that we just don't know ourselves until we come to Jesus. Listen again to what she says to her her folks back uh, back in her town. In verse 29, she says to them, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
That is the testimony of every single Christian believer. Meet a man who told me everything I ever did, someone who just made sense of my life. Someone who showed me who I really am. This is how we discover who we really are. My friends, we cannot understand ourselves truly apart from Jesus Christ. We just don't have enough self-knowledge. We can't have enough. It takes an encounter with the one who made us to discover who we really are. We won't make sense of our hearts and that the ways that we are driven by this soul thirst unless we come to Jesus Christ. There's, a, there's still language today about finding yourself. People who did do different things to, to try to find themselves. But Jesus is saying you don't need to trek through the jungles of Southeast Asia, not washing for three months to find yourself. You need to meet him. And like Jesus, we can say to the people around us, sorry, like this lady, we can say to the people around us, hey, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. The second lesson is this. In Jesus, we can be both fully known and fully loved at the same time. So think about what had happened with this woman. People knew her. She was from a small town. She'd had a, a string of failed marriages behind her. People knew her, and because they knew her, they rejected her. That is the predicament all of us face in this world. We want to be known, we want to be loved, but so often we have to choose between the two. And we think to ourselves, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And we think the people who love us, that's because they don't really know us. If they really knew what I was like deep down, they wouldn't love me. And so we have to become our own PR agents. We have to edit what aspects people of us encounter and see and experience. Uh, a few weeks ago, I went to see a, a show in New York called Dear Evan Hansen. It was amazing. Uh, it's about a teenage boy, Evan Hansen, who is struggling to connect with other people. And so, at the advice of his therapist, he writes a letter to himself about why it's going to be okay. And one day, he's written that letter, it's in his pocket, and another, another guy at school sees this letter, snatches it from him, and starts to mock him because he's written this little pep talk to himself. That other boy ends up taking his own life, and the only thing his parents find on him is this letter written to Evan Hansen. And so Evan Hansen comes up with this story that actually they were really close friends and they were of big support to each other, and all of a sudden everyone is, is celebrating him for what he's done to support this guy who was obviously very troubled. But it was all built on a lie. And when things are at their worst for Evan Hansen, his mum says to him, Evan, I love you. 
And he replies, you don't even know me. No one does. To which she says, I know you. And I love you. And I promise you, there was not a dry eye in the house. It's what all of us long for, to be deeply known and deeply loved at the same time. The, the kind of strap line for the show is, you will be found. This Samaritan lady has been found. You and I can be found. Jesus knew this woman better than she knew herself. But that knowledge didn't turn him off from her. He knew her deeply and he loved her fully. He went to her. He sought her out. He offered his life to her. Why? Well, here's the final lesson. Verse 31, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus is weary and hungry from his journey. The disciples go off to find food. They come back with a packet of Lunchables or whatever it is they have. They give it to Jesus, and he's not touching it. So they say to him, Rabbi, eat. For goodness sake, we've just gone and bought this food for you. Eat. And so we see a bit of a parallel with the woman. She came with physical thirst, but left without her water. Jesus arrives with physical hunger, but is now not touching his food. He says to them in verse 32, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. Which sends them into a complete confusion. Verse 33, they said to one another, has anyone else brought him something to eat? But Jesus explains, verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There is a food that matters to Jesus far more than lunch does. Jesus says he comes to people like us, to people like this woman. He comes, he offers his own life in our place, gives us this living water so that we will never thirst, hangs on a cross in our place because he says doing so is food to him. The very moment Jesus is saying this to the disciples, we've already been told the Samaritan woman has gone off and she's bringing half her town to see him. This is food for Jesus. This is what satisfies him. That people come to drink the living water from him. That people come to find their satisfaction in him. So, my friends, as we come to Jesus afresh this morning, 
looking to Him for life, for satisfaction, He's not rolling His eyes at us. He's not offended by our need. It's like food to Him to supply all that we lack. And that changes us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the goodness of Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that He came not just to to teach, not just to show us our need, to show us our lack, but to be our all in all. So please help us to come to Him afresh this morning to drink the living water and to find our satisfaction in Him. Amen.